Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Londonist Out Loud is available free as a stream at Londonist.com or a weekly download via iTunes. Hit us up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, tweet at Londonist Sound, and check out images of our guests via the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sounds. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a stone throw from your front door. Hey baby, step out me. was Christmas 2013. I hope you had a great one if you celebrated. Just the Christmas sales, which are already well underway to go, and then the New Year celebrations, and then it's 2014. It's been a fantastic year for Londonist Out Loud. We've got to explore some amazing institutions and meet a great cast of Londoners across the course of the year. Uh, Listener figures are sky high. Among them, Laura, who tweets at Londonist Sound to say, I love the podcast and listen every week. She, she goes on to say, and this, this is really the important bit, N. Quentin is awesome. Thank you, Laura. And you say you're visiting London again after New Year's. Can't wait. Well, that's, that's grand. And, of course, a lot of our listeners are overseas. Uh, among them, a couple in Australia who wrote to me during the year asking who the theme music was by because they love it so much that they want to get married to it. Well, I'd love to hear from you if you're listening. Did that happen? Well, today's show is a potpourri of things that have happened in 2013, excerpts from some of my favourite shows. And listening back to some of the recordings from the past year to prepare for this show, it really does remind you how long a year can be and how much can be packed in. Now, it's been quite difficult to choose which pieces to keep in and which to leave out. There was so much stuff worthy of being heard one more time. The 1st of February, however, is where we'll start. And that day found me in the Atlantis bookshop, talking to the owner there, Geraldine Buskin, and Nigel of Bermondsey about vampires, fortune-telling, and sexism in astrology. Geraldine, we should uh, plug the the bookshop first of all and and maybe dig a little into the sort of stuff. It's magic, wishcraft, but it goes further than that, doesn't it? Oh, yes, it does. We we are Western in our outlook, really, rather than Eastern and mystical. So we don't have much on yoga and um, gurus and people like that. We more are the Western mystery tradition, which is King Arthur, Druidry, witchcraft and 
um, ceremonial magic, the formal stuff, the thing that they learned at Hogwarts, basically, but for real. Well, okay, this for real element is, of course, a good place to start. And I remember when I looked on your website, I think it must have been a couple of years ago now, there was a guy who was billing himself as a vampire who I, I'm not sure if he was coming to do a talk here or what, but he was in some way connected with the, with the place. And I thought, well, does he really think he's a vampire? Do other people really think he's a vampire? Which sort of leads to the, the broader question of, uh, with, with all the different ideas and philosophies and occult stuff going on in the, in the pages of the books above us, do you buy into to all of these different ideas? And, and are some of them stronger for you? Or that, do some of them guide how you live your life? Well, Alistair Crowley and Austin Spare were customers of ours, and they are particular passions of mine. And there is so much fashion involved in magic. A lot of people don't appreciate that. But like the guy who came who was doing the talk on vampires for us, now, because of Buffy and all the television and Hollywood stuff, there's a, there's a great fashion for vampirism and being able to do fantastical feats that really you can only do in a studio. But a lot of people now are energy vampires. Before, they were blood-based vampires. Vampires, and that was it. Now you have to have a, a clean bill of health before you would swap blood with anybody if you have any sense at all. And so taking energy from a bigger group is somehow allowable. I don't think you should do anything like that without asking the person's permission first, but that's how a lot of vampires do work. This sounds as though it borders on a sort of a philosophy of interpersonal behaviour. Oh, yes, yes, it does. It does. And also, a lot of people have, have got, you know, they, they don't know the boundaries, so they don't know that they're transgressing them, which is quite curious and quite interesting. 20 years ago, there were certain things that you would not dream of doing that people do in groups now. They're even trying to rebrand fortune-telling um, using a name of a French woman that nobody in England can pronounce. There are certain lunacies that have come through the internet and through people not knowing any better, really. And there's this willful corruption of stuff because it's fun. But now something that is a fun conversation in a pub becomes viral very, very quickly and gets established. And really, it's got no legs. There's no substance to it. So there's big, big changes in magic currently. But you can't beat the fact that if you've got a pure heart, it will be okay. A lot of people don't want a pure heart. And they won't get results either because they haven't got them. Hmm. Okay, so there's something about the the long establishment because you've been open here since 22, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and a very uh, curious thing that is too, if you consider that witchcraft was illegal till the early 50s, what did they sell? Well, they, well, what did they sell? Well, they seem to have sold medieval manuscripts. They sold a lot of anthropology, as we used to call folklore, at parties, to be polite to people, not worry them too much, uh, tarot cards, and um, general broad-spectrum things, but much, much harder to do. Ghosts and spiritualism were very, very popular then. But while, while witchcraft is, was illegal, um, astrology wasn't, because, I mean, when you were thinking back to, like, the 17th century and you're talking about witch trials, um, at the same time, you'd have, for example, uh, William Lilly, who was a resident of the Strand. He was um, he was an astrologer. He was also a Puritan, and he was the astrologer to Oliver Cromwell during the English Civil War, because they, they, were, uh, they were royalist and... Uh, and roundhead astrologies and astrology was considered not to be witchcraft unless it was used in the recovery of stolen goods so that so that actually if you if, if something was lost 
uh, and you went to an astrologer to uh, to see if they could cast an, uh, what's known as a horary, which is kind of finding the time when something was lost. Um, that was considered to be bordering on witchcraft. But if you went there and said, I have got a business venture and I came up with the idea at such and such a time, can you make a chart for me? This was considered to be acceptable. Um, and it's partly because of the relationship between astrology uh, and astronomy as drivers of, you know, astrology very much was a driver of the astrological science. And also because it was practiced mostly by men. Uh, I think that that's really where you find astrology being not made illegal at the same time as, say, witchcraft, really. Our review of the year continues when we find ourselves on March the 22nd when I was in Notting Hill Gate and I was being taught how to make gin. Incidentally, if you fancy getting your own Londonist out loud blend made up from the recipe we left at the Gin Institute, you can do exactly that. The history of London, I soon learned, is juniper flavoured, as told by Jake F. Berger. Okay, let's take a a step back before we dive into the gin. (laughs) No, that's not what I mean to say. (laughs) Gin, of course, has a history connected with London. We think of Hogarth's Gin Lane in particular, the gin gin epidemics and so forth. And you mentioned that there's a miserable history behind gin. What's that all about? Well, Hogarth certainly uh, encapsulated the misery of the gin craze, but we can probably go back a bit further than that to look to the, uh, the very roots of London's love affair with gin, perhaps all the way back to about 1568 when Queen Elizabeth I was sitting on the English throne and she was great allies with the Dutch royal family. The Dutch were having terrible problems with the Spanish trying to impose Catholicism onto them and the like. Uh, so she summoned her favoured nobleman and chief suitor, one Robert Dudley, the first Earl of Leicester, and charged him with uh, assembling a, an army of troops to go and fight alongside the Dutch in their fight against the Spanish and uh, whilst they were over there they're said to have acquired the habit of getting uh, loaded on the local hooch before going into battle the alleged origin of the phrase Dutch courage and the drink they would have been drinking was Geneva or Geneva which is uh, a Dutch juniper flavoured spirit which takes its name from the French word for juniper uh, and we acquired quite a taste for it and after the wars were all wrapped up we returned to London perhaps with around 5,000 uh, Dutchmen with us, and at first we were expensively importing the Dutchies or the Hollands, uh, but we soon realised that we had the wherewithal and the technology to create our own version of it, and the word was quickly shortened from Geneva to gin, and uh, that's the, the birth of gin story here in England, really. London was certainly uh, a big part of it, but uh, distillers would also pop up in places like Bristol, Bath, and the coastal towns, Portsmouth, Plymouth, where of course they're still distilling today. But for the first kind of 100 years or so, it was very much the preserve of the, the working man and the peasants and the kind of criminal underclasses, I suppose. Oh, right, because you brought it in with Robert Dudley there, but, uh, of course, of aristocratic means. But uh, why, why was this a working person's drink? Um, it was, I mean, chiefly I, my presumption being it was the most efficient and affordable way to get drunk, really. So this was a soldier's rather than Dudley himself who were uh, yes, knocking yes, his back? Yes, completely, yeah. We don't see the uh, the aristocracy or even the, the kind of middle classes starting to enjoy gin for a uh, a good long time yet. It was uh, very much the drink of the of the peasant and the working man for a long time. Uh, it bubbles along for the best part of 100 years or so. Um, a lot of the English at this time are still drinking their ales and beers and ciders. We're importing a lot of French wine and French brandy. And gin is still, as I said, the preserve of the uh, peasant. And then 1680, another Dutchman comes into our story, William of Orange 
who himself was a keen drinker of the expensive imported Holland's gin. His royal palace was known as the Gin Palace at the time, a phrase which comes back into our story in about 150 years. Well, let me let me put the brakes on it, because what I'm noticing then is potentially that uh, the, the aristocracy, the royalty in parts of Europe were drinking this, but over here it's got an entirely different social standing. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, perhaps the, the Dutch, I mean, uh, invented this Geneva, and uh, it was perhaps... Uh, escaped class kind of uh, boundaries over there but over here certainly not uh, he was the exception not the rule but one thing that uh, he did do whilst on the throne was in a pattern which has been repeated down through history he was a, a British monarch with uh, a particular problem with the French uh, so upon seizing the English throne he outlawed the importation of all French goods which meant, meant the supply of French brandy and French wine dried up and the uh, English gin producers soon grasped the opportunity and plugged that gap with the English gin which with the benefit of a historical standpoint we can kind of pinpoint that as the beginning of the gin craze which is an era which lasts on and off for the next 200 years or so and this is where the uh, story begins to get really miserable 200 years I had no idea it went on for that long my my impression was that they put taxes up everyone went nuts for a, a, a few years and then they sorted the problem out I mean it comes and goes um, I suppose at first the gin craze is just ticking along under the uh, throne of uh, William of Orange, but he was only on the throne for 22 years and was succeeded by his sister-in-law, Queen Anne, who uh, immediately deregulated the distillation industry, which may have been a popular but perhaps misguided manoeuvre. And in her short reign, we saw English gin consumption jump from half a million gallons a year to five million gallons a year. So by the time we're into the kind of early uh, 1720s, the 1730s, we've seen the amount of gin being drunk in England really increase to frightening levels and really start to have a very dramatic and noticeable effect on the inner city, similar to a modern drugs epidemic like we see with crystal meth in middle America at the moment or something like that. It's really kind of leads to an increase in crime, a breakdown in the family, uh, tragic circumstances, really. You mentioned the inner city. I was wondering whether gin found its way into the country or was it this, was this really this an time, urban issue? Yeah, this time very much the, the, the drink of the, uh, of the inner cities and the working classes, really. Um, I suppose the country folk had access to the beer and the ciders more easily, I guess, because they've got the, the ingredients uh, uh, surrounding them. Um, and we're moving now into that kind of time of, uh, of William Hogarth that you mentioned earlier on, the gin lane. It was uh, 1729, so just a few years before Hogarth printed his, uh, his print. It was Francis Place, a social commentator from some years later, wrote that from this era. Enjoyments for the poor of this time were limited. They often had only two, sexual intercourse and drinking, and that drunkenness is by far the most desired, as it was cheaper and its effects were more enduring. <laughs> so, I mean, people were drinking and... Uh, having sex and obviously there was many unwanted children so we have this story that could be seen as an enduring consequence though could yes <laughs> well it was a fairly awful time it was before the age of a, a welfare state and before effective contraceptions an unwanted child could be quite a burden so a common route to take would be to give up the child to the workhouse where it would be fed and clothed and looked after till such an age it could be put to use and we have the story from 1734 of judith de who uh Having given up her child, a couple of years later reclaimed the infant and promptly stripped the clothes from its back, which she sold for one shilling and four, which she spent on gin, uh, leaving the naked child abandoned in a ditch where it dies of exposure. So, you know, we use the phrase mother's ruin quite flippantly these days, but back then it certainly had far more sinister overtones, which leads us nicely into the uh, the etching by William Hogarth, Hogarth Gin Lane. Yes, this is one of the uh, most famous 
images really isn't it when it, when yeah. it comes to London in the near ground we've got a building with a pawnbroker's uh, symbol hanging off the side of it there uh, I guess indicating the, the poverty that's brought about we've got uh, what looks like a, a drinks joint a beer joint an alehouse something like that in the near ground and in the steps up to the sort of piazza there we've got a mother half disrobed she's got bits hanging out and uh, a baby is falling off the side railing to its doom which is probably the the most depressing element of all of it yeah the the child is dropping down into the steps of the gin shop which has a inscription above the door reading drunk for a penny dead drunk for tuppence clean straw for free people get so drunk that they wouldn't be able to find their way home they'd have to sleep in the gin shop the mother herself has got syphilitic sores on her legs so we can presume that she's turned to prostitution and there's kind of ghastly figures all around this chap here looks like uh, he's at death's door there's a woman feeding gin to a newborn child there the distillery itself that everyone is drinking outside is rather unsubtly called the Killman Distillery the poor old barber has hung himself because he uh, doesn't have uh, any customers because they've all spent their money on gin some fairly awful scenes this chap's walking around with a baby impaled on a spike it's all fairly oh, how, how did I miss that? I've seen this picture a hundred times. <laughs> so we can presume William Hogarth's opinions on gin to be uh, fairly obvious from looking at that picture. And um, this was, whilst Gin Lane wasn't a, a real street, it was inspired by a very real neighbourhood. This is the St Giles area of London, so kind of round the back uh, of where we'd find Centre Point now. Jake F. Berger there. As you can tell from his voice, Jake has a fantastic presence and his voice resonates in that wonderful way. Another of my guests who had a tremendous sense of authority and a commensurate position of authority was Roger Gifford, the Lord Mayor of London. And I met with him at Mansion House and our conversation ranged quite widely, including some public speaking tips. And I know you spend, uh, well, something like 100 days out of the the country in the year, 22-ish countries. Uh, the, the statistic that really amazed me was the idea of 800 speeches in the air on average, which is sort of two and a half speeches a day getting on for. To be honest, I'm not counting. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not surprised. That seems like a terrific workload, though. I mean, for, for, bearing in mind, presumably, that each speech is accompanied by a function of some sort that, that you must attend. That, that seems... I mean, every, every, uh, when is a speech a speech? I mean, when is it not a speech? I mean, it's the, 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 there are many events, and that, that the, the, the role is to be present and to represent the City of London, to promote the city in its various aspects, depending on the occasion, and very often there's a speaking opportunity. But every next speech is the most important one. <laughs> Do you enjoy public speaking? Um, uh, yes, I think I do. Thank you. Because <laughs> some people, it's their, uh, their, their worst fear, so I was, uh, no. I was hoping that it was something you enjoy. No, I do, I do enjoy it, and it's, it's, I, I think it's, it's, it's an art. I've been a musician all my life, so I've always been performing on, on instruments. So um, the idea of public performance is not strange. The challenge of doing it well is huge. I mean, it is not easy to speak in public effectively. It just isn't. And I think that takes a lot of practice, and I'm very conscious of needing that practice. So more practice, the better. By the end of the year, I'll be great. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that. By the end of the year, I'll be much more practised. For, for those seeking to speak in public, is there a tip that you might, uh, that you might give them? Um, I think speak slowly and clearly, and I'm not sure I always do that, but um, try hard. What instrument do you play? I play the piano and the recorder, and I sing mostly. The piano, yeah, okay. So the, the piano in particular seems to me to be uh, rather a high profile. It's not, not as though you're one amongst the the mass of violins. You're perhaps oh, used to it to a high no, profile position. The, the piano is for my own enjoyment primarily, and I, I did my grades at school. I haven't got a lot beyond that, and I'm not a good sight reader. Whereas singing in choirs and singing solo, I've done much, much more. That's been much more of an activity, and I play the recorder relatively seriously. 
Bach and Tillemann, for instance, rather than Do Re Mi. <clears throat> the high-profile moment that you had very recently, of course, was at Baroness Thatcher's funeral. And just, just on a very personal level, I, re- I realised that you were carrying the sword of mourning in front of the Queen, Her Majesty the Queen, and Prince Philip as they entered St Paul's Cathedral. A lot of eyes on you at that moment. And really, it got me to wondering whether there comes a moment in your work where... You, like a trapeze artist on a, on a wire or something, you look down and go, oh, bloody hell, I'm on a trapeze. Yes, you're absolutely right. You do. And and I think... Actually, I think beforehand, you, you think a lot about the, you're, you're going to be on, on camera and, you know, is my hair straight and have I put on the right socks today? But when you're there and doing it, you don't. You just get on with it. And I think the, the enormity of, of, of Baroness Thatcher's funeral was... One, I was very conscious that there were many foreign dignitaries there, many people who'd come for this extraordinary person's life. Um, there was also some controversy. There were those in the streets who, who didn't agree with everything that she did or said, or perhaps anything that she did or said. Um, I'm not one of those. But, uh, but given, the, given the comment around it and the eyes of the world, of course, the night before I didn't sleep terribly well. But at the, on the actual day, it was just fantastic to take part, and um, the, the Queen was charming, um, and not, both both before and after, we, we, had, we, had, we had opportunity to speak briefly, but she was charming, and, and certainly that charm makes one feel that much more relaxed about walking up and down. And of course, it's not the first time that you've met with Her Majesty. I don't know whether it's a very regular occurrence. No, actually, one one doesn't. But uh, there was an opportunity soon after she came to the Barbican Concert Hall for a for a for a, for a very special occasion, a commemorative concert. So uh, I was able to meet her then. I wondered when you feel least like the Lord Mayor of the City of London, and I guess uh, I'm asking that because I'm, I'm conscious of how much you must inhabit the office and, and inhabit the role, uh, perhaps more so than a lot of other people doing their jobs, and how you manage perhaps that public-private balance. Hmm. Uh, I think the, when I put the rubbish out on a Sunday night, um, I don't feel at all um, different from anybody else in the, in the city or the country. Um, I think some of the rest of the time, you, you naturally are conscious of the, of the public side of the job, but much of the work really is not about that. It's not about... Uh, dressing up and flummery um, that's maybe one or two percent of the all the time much of it is business is about meeting people particularly people from abroad many many government and treasury officials from foreign countries come through the doors there's probably a meeting a day related to the work of the city of, of london um, sometimes that's pure promotional you know it's a great place to come and set up your bank other times it's uh, they may have an issue about uh, the financial transaction tax or about visas or about something which we'll try and help them with most most of the work is around that and to be honest it's not so different from the work i was doing before at the bank which was again a, a fairly representational job if, if there is a tendency to become um, self-aggrandized and important, there, there are a lot of people around to bring one down a peg or two. Not least my wife, Claire. <laughs> Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. 
You're listening to Londonist Out Loud on the 27th of December 2013. I'm looking back at the year and we're through to August already, the 2nd of August. And I met with historian Lucy Ingalls at a rather nice restaurant on the north bank of the river to talk about London and immigration. It turns out foreign workers arriving to supply their building skills is nothing new. There was a, a big skills shortfall after the Great Fire of London, as Lucy explained. We should focus on the on the fire perhaps and this is a story that will be familiar perhaps to listeners who know the story of London but it, it wouldn't hurt to just repeat the, the facts as we know them about what happened in 1666 and, and maybe specifically what the effects were I think one of the myths possibly that I hear repeated is that the plague was destroyed by the fire I'm not sure whether you see any truth in that but how did the how did the fire take place the fire took place uh, well, the plague was petering out anyway as it tends to do it it was really terrible throughout the summer of 1665 and then sort of with the hot weather and of course the rising fleas and, uh, that, that carry the Yersinia pestis bacteria um, it had a bit of a resurgence in 1666 and then in, in the early hours of uh, September the 2nd uh, there is a fire breaking out in Pudding Lane in uh, a bakery, the bakery of Thomas Far- Farriner. And uh, the fires were really common. I think we don't necessarily have that. We had a fire service and people were used to being on hand very quickly and responding to fire. Uh, it was a very flammable city. It was w- mainly wood. Um, and and then, of course, all these gables leaning together meant that fire could cross rooftops very easily. And essentially, that's what happened. We, they, we had a prevailing um, wind that carried the fire into the city, and it became colossal very, very quickly. Can we say anything about the level of damage and the relatively low number of lives lost? Yeah, the the. the the damage itself was massive. In the in the square mile, four fifths of all the buildings went, um, which I think, and including Old St Paul's, which I think is just we can't conceive of that sort of devastation now. Um, and uh, the, the level of, of fatalities were, in theory, very low. The official losses in the, the in the Great Fire over thirteen thousand homes, eighty seven churches. Uh, one great cathedral and uh, pretty much all of the city's public buildings which I think is is quite staggering. The the official losses in terms of life are very low but we really don't know how many people were living alone who were uh, or infirm or aged and just who never made it out of their houses um, that would just to become statistics. There, there was, for instance, a young public schoolboy, <laughs> Westminster schoolboy, William Taswell, who, um, after the fire died down, he put on his uh, armour and <laughs> his helmet and he got his little sword because, you know, when you're 15, going into the city dressed in metal just after a great fire was, was a good idea. And he did almost pass out from the heat um, and had to keep stopping. But then he, he looked around the wreckage of St Paul's and he found the body of a woman who had essentially been um, just desiccated by the fire. She hadn't been burned, uh, crouching in, in a corner of one of the buttresses where she'd just tried to get out of the heat and, and hadn't, um, you know, she'd, she'd perished there, but she hadn't actually burned to death. Um, and we don't know how many more of those people there were 
around, and I think probably quite a lot. There would be prisoners who didn't escape and, and things like that, because there were lots of little luck at prisons and things like that. You know, your priority is not going to be to go and free the prisoners, and, and afterwards, you know, bad luck. And, and as you say, it moved exceptionally quickly as well. Uh, incredibly quickly. There was a point where they were hoping that, um, that, that, that the fleet would form a natural break to the west, and uh, as uh, the Duke of York, Charles's brothers, uh, soldiers tried to uh, work as firefighters to stop the fire. They stood and watched as the fire actually leapt the ditch towards them and started to burn the bridges on the west side of the fleet. So, and and that was pretty serious. But it did only make it as far as um, number 55 now, um, before the wind changed. As an historian, how do you go about uh, ascertaining how many people were about in those days I and mean, were, were there any sort of reliable records for how many people were in the slum areas of London? No that's a problem and that's one of the things that we would be talking about with immigration um, we have records of uh, births but there were only the children that were christened, christened in parishes, parish records and so their parents already had a vested interest usually in that parish um, and people who lost babies before they were christened or who um, didn't bother christening their children. There's quite a few of those. I mean, atheism is not a new concept. There were lots of people who were not that bothered about religion or who were members of dissenting religions that did not keep records or did not have a body or a presence here in the city. Um, also people living on the margins of the city and people who were very poor. So we, we don't have accurate records, really, of how big the city was. Um, estimates, I think the bottom estimate at that stage is about 500,000 and the top is about 630. I don't think I've ever fully understood the devastation of the fire, although I knew it was uh, extreme. But four-fifths of the city makes me begin to understand why such a building project was needed in order to put things uh, well not put things back together actually it was a, an opportunity for a complete rethink wasn't it yeah yeah although the rethink didn't actually happen Wren's wonderful plans for the city never never came to pass <laughs> who, who was Wren why was he brought in oh so Christopher Wren uh, was sort of this amazing polymath who was moving increasingly into he was a thinker and he was mo- and an astronomer and he was moving increasingly into architecture so he he'd already been brought in the week before old St Paul's burned down he'd been brought in to see about repairs with another great thinker and they both said that it was it was an old dog and it needed pulling down essentially um, and so, so this whole thing was just an insurance scam <laughs> was it? well that's the thing and the, the clergy wouldn't have it they said oh no it must be repaired it must be repaired and a week later of course they both got the career opportunity of a lifetime which is quite astonishing, I always think. But the rebuilding of the city, we don't really... Uh, 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 Gideon Harvey, who was a contemporary author, put an estimate of a million pounds a year on the rebuilding of the city after the fire, which is just billions, I mean, in real, in real terms. Um, and, and the cost of the new cathedral itself, I think, was, was gargantuan. John uh, Evelyn, the diarist, and Christopher Wren, the week before, uh, had... Uh, the week before the fire, had attended a meeting of the clergy and the city officials and several expert workmen to discuss how the medieval St Paul's might be rescued. And Wren and Evelyn didn't think it was worth it. They, they thought it should be pulled down and replaced with uh, a noble cupola, a form not yet as known in England, but of wonderful grace. And I think that's a, you know, Wren, <laughs> Wren already had this idea, but, and then the fire just helped him out enormously.
Stephen Coates is a musician, music producer, and he's the brains behind a salon that's run regularly at the Westminster Arts Reference Library. Like many of my guests, his passion for London has taken him to some pretty strange places, including, well, I'll let Stephen explain. Well, I mean, in the end of the 90s, I was having a bit of a strange time, and I had some very strong dreams. I had a a dream about an underground place which was dripping with water, uh, shortly afterwards, I came across an account of the of the fleet sewer. I uh, bluffed my way into persuading Thames Water to take me down there. This is late nineties, but just basically by lying. Um, and I had this journey up the fleet, which is interesting because Rachel Lichtenstein, who was here last week, uh, has also done that journey. Um, and we went from Blackfriars up to uh, Hatton Gardenish, and um, it had a sort of strangely kind of, I suppose to coin a phrase psychogeographical effect on me I, I left where I was living in West London and moved to Clerkenwell to a flat right above the fleet as near as I could to there um, and then a lot of the work that I subsequently did musically was, was connect, felt like connected with the place so uh, yeah that was a big decision obviously to move and to, to, to move from a rather nice place I was living in uh, West London to a very small dark Victorian place in Clerkenwell. Clerkenwell isn't somewhere that naturally comes to my mind when we discuss sewers, but th- that connection mm. aside, can you talk us through what that experience was? And I don't know if you were conscious of being inspired as it as it took place, or maybe it was uh, you know, afterwards that you discovered something had changed. Well, uh, the, my most commercially successful song uh, is called Bath Time in Clerkenwell, funnily enough, uh, uh, a sort of jazz scat mix-up, which... Literally, I made in the middle of the night after a nocturnal walk. It's difficult to say, like, you know, I'm not, it wasn't name checking streets and stuff like that. How did it affect it? It was, a, it was a, I was soaking it up. I felt at the time I was soaking it up. It was, that's, a, that's a very unfortunate turn of phrase in a sewer. Isn't it? <laughs> that's right. Well, you know what? A lot, a lot of it was shit. <laughs> As my record company told me. <laughs> Can you get us down the sewer and describe that experience? Right, okay, yeah, so we, we, uh, I got this, I got this, this shows how long ago it was, I got a fax. After all this uh, badgering and bluffing and stuff, I finally got a fax from Thames Water, which said, if you want to go down the sewer, you need to be at the Hackney Wick pumping station at 5.30 tomorrow morning. Um, I was not used to early mornings at all, I can assure you. So um, I may have even, even have stayed up all night. But I got out there, and I was met by this rather intimidating uh, gang of, uh, of sewermen who were rather withering towards me, I've got to say. You know, but we got in the van, and I warmed them up, and we, we, we sort of drove down to uh, Blackfriars. We got out of the van... Completely kitted up in yellow rubber, masks, devices, and all sorts of stuff. They, they lifted up a, uh, a manhole cover, which was on the roundabout at the north side of Blackfriars Bridge. I think it's changed now. Uh, we went down a shaft, a longer passageway, down a ladder, another shaft, down, 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 and came back into this vast uh, cavern, really. The, ca- the, the big space, which is where the fleet meets the Thames, there's four giant iron gates where the sewer floods into the Thames if there's a bad storm, you know, normally it drops into the, the outfall sewer, it doesn't actually go into the river anymore uh, and this was kind of the place that I'd had a dream about uh, so it was quite strange and then they, they led me up uh, a pipe, I mean it's, it's to call it the bed of the fleet is, is way too romantic, it's a Victorian rather nice actually, brick uh, oval shaped 
tunnel and it meets various other tunnels and well, how, how tall are we talking what sort of head height uh, like, headroom did you have i think it starts at about uh i'd say about 12 foot and then as you as you as you go up maybe a bit, bit more and then as you go up it gets smaller uh and tighter and then there's very smaller uh passageways off and occasionally you can see a little bit of daylight you know which may be a manhole or a shaft above um very confusing within about 10 minutes i was completely disorientated it's super hot smells but not of the things that you think it would smell of it actually smells of anything of detergent and the water looks like you know when your washing machine as the doors got stuck and you open it up and there's a sort of strange dark smelly detergent well it's that basically a lot of that uh, I didn't see any rats or anything. But the, the, the interesting thing was that um, they got to a particular place where they stopped and started what I would call panning for gold. I mean, they obviously weren't going to find any gold, but um, and I did it too, and I found an Irish silver ring. Somewhere underneath Hatton Garden, I found an Irish silver ring in the, in the fleet sewer from 19th century. What, uh, what were they panning for? Basically, they know certain places where if things are going to catch stuff that people have dropped or has fallen down, small items, jewellery. They know, these guys, there's a couple of places where it's likely to be. So they're, they're beachcombing? Yeah, they're, they're like the toshers or right. whatever, you know, they do that. Uh, that's, a, that's a nice little perk of the job then, presumably, a few uh, antiquities and rings and so forth. Yeah, I mean, we, we're in Lord of the Rings territory here. Obviously, I was just looking for Gollum at this point. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, well, uh, that's an interesting thing because... Uh, we carried on up, um, and the reason that we had to leave, actually, was that you, f- you feel this kind of hot wind coming. And basically, it's, you, it means that there's, it's flooding. Uh, uh, and when it floods, you know, there's, there's a storm up on top. But what they used to do is bang manhole covers, because people had you got about 20 minutes to get out of there. Now they've got walkie-talkies and stuff. But the first thing you <laughs> feel is this, this hot wind as the water upstream or up sewer as it is is, 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 is filling a smaller tunnel and it's pushing the air out, you know. And that's the time when you need to get out, because with all the technology in the world, you could just be bowled over by the water. How did that feel, that moment? Well, I, I, I was feeling rather anxious. I, I, up till then, it, it, was, it was an exciting day, but I was suddenly filled with those thoughts that you are, which is that I don't want to end my days in a sewer underneath Farringdon Road. <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, it's, it puts a new angle on what the dream was all about, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. It was this what it was all about. Yeah, for sure. So I don't think there was really any possibility of that, but I, I did sense their urgency. You know, that's what made me feel a bit anxious. They, they, they suddenly. So we got out and we emerged somewhere in Clerkenwell. And then I spent, because uh, we'd come out earlier than they'd been intending, so we spent about an hour in their van uh, talking. And that was fascinating because I think the youngest of them must have been in his mid to late 40s. Um, they'd spent their life roaming the sewers um, it's impossible to map that stuff apart from the major things because it's so complicated uh, so a lot of the knowledge of the, of that, of the sewers is basically it's oral history which has been passed on traditionally as they take on younger guys, always guys so far uh, and they sort of pass on the knowledge of the system to them but of course that stopped that or certainly had at that point, Thames Water weren't employing anybody else they believed that they could do it all by diagrams and you know small SWAT teams so I got this very got this sense that uh, that knowledge say the knowledge which would tell them where to pan for things 
was going to be gone soon. And in, in, in the f- deeper recesses of the system, nobody really knows. I did ask um, the oldest guy there, I actually uh, asked him what was the strangest thing he'd seen underground. Uh, and I thought he was going to do some James Herbert style, you know, rats thing. But he said, um, somewhere in the middle of town, maybe not too far from here, actually, uh, a route which they would take every three months or six months, you know, they'd walk it or investigate it. Uh, they, he's, they came into, there's a tunnel in the, which comes out into another big underground uh, cavern. And um, he said he came out in it and uh, put his light on him. He was completely freaked out because in the middle of it, there was a cast iron double bed. Well, Dennis Seaver's house is pretty unique in its scope and in its wit. It's certainly a feast for the senses. And I think it offers a challenge to conventional ways of thinking about the boundary between museum curation and art and autobiography. In September 2013, David Milne was my guide. And we're into a bedchamber, no doubt about that. A four-poster there with curtains hanging down and we can see uh, there there are one or two subtle clues that this might be the lady of the house's room it is yeah um elizabeth but remember now we're headed even further into time so the young lady that was in the drawing room is now this old lady here and here she is um reading her mail catching up on her correspondence in the portrait she has a bonnet and there's the bonnet that she wears so instantly you can take that lady and place her here Here's her lovely 18th century dress, again, a Spitalfields gown. The detritus of her night out with her husband laid out across the dressing table because, remember, her maid will clean up and put everything away for her. I guess if you were to think of, uh, what was that film, a fairly recent version of Marie Antoinette, something like that, there's a few feathers here that remind me of that sort of period, the big puffed-out dresses with the tight bodices yeah it's i mean it was remembered that you know everything in europe kind of traveled so fashions from france were very prevalent and this room is you know it's it's this wonderful collection of chinoiserie but this was also dennis's bedroom is that right yeah so if you look his shoes are on the floor where he left them oh right yes we hit the very uh very mismatched uh, big pair of shoes with a pair of socks tucked in ready to go this is uh, dressing gown and behind the screen is um, his computer still there that he wrote his book on his baseball jackets on the back of the chair the closets are full of his suits and ties and shoes and all his personal papers and photographs and letters from friends are all still in the closets where he left them I've been trying to spot as we've been working around the place I've been thinking about what sort of person Dennis Seavers might have been and I was wondering given that the house bears his name the extent to which ego played a part in the creation of the place and how much this was about him and how much it was nothing to do with him it was it was of course it was everything about him just as um, I think it what he was of his time because I don't think you know today people wouldn't create this you know people more obsessed now with having these perfect examples of things you know there are people that live in the neighborhood that have spent millions on their houses and they're furnished exquisitely with the best of everything and they in some way are more of a museum than this house is you know this was dennis's home so some things are very good some things aren't but all of this remember is more 
I wouldn't say static, but actually, you know, Dennis isn't here anymore. So his life that was laid constantly on top of this has vanished. It's just the objects of his life. They're almost like the signpost to our vistas that he once inhabited this house. I mean, we're very aware of it because he was here and we knew him for so long. But for everybody else that comes now, they come to visit this family. Just as when Dennis was alive, you came to visit his family that he'd created. But he would retreat, you see. And his shoes and things like that, you know, his shoes wouldn't be there. His dressing gown and things would be left around just to let you be aware or to remind you that this was his house. Because actually when you're in somebody else's house, you should really treat it with great respect. I sort of want to ask you... Is could you, as somebody who knew him, could you sort of open up his amazing, incredibly fertile, imagined <laughs> world and, and look into his brain? What was really at the core of this drive to make this incredible place? Oh, um, uh, very briefly, um, young chap, Californian, living in America, growing up with that American idea of what we are and what this country is and what this city is. Coming here as a teenager, falling in love with the light of Northern Europe, but also coming with that idea in his head of black and white Hollywood films of old, ye oldie England, you know, Charles Dickens stories, all of that kind of thing. Um, and of course, when he came here, London was being demolished and rebuilt in the 60s. And what he didn't find, he then created it within this ancient old house so this is a life raft yeah basically and, and he didn't retreat from the world you know and he didn't dress up in period costume and try and pretend that he was in the 18th century but actually he loved all of this and it was his creation and he lived amongst it and then opened the door and shared it with everybody else now, he was only, uh, he died in, in 99, I think, yeah. at the age of about 51, 52. Yeah, he was 51, just after. It was his birthday, November, and he died in December. Yeah, it was very quick, um, thankfully, because I think, you know, when your time's up, your time's up, and I, it would have been awful if he'd kind of gone on and on and on and on, but the cancer was right through his body, and, you know, that was it. He was gone. And then the house closed for a while, and we did some repairs to it because things needed to be done um, and then we opened it again and the house is completely self-funded so actually without our visitors and without the events and the filming and the photo shoots that we have in the house there would be no money coming into it and the house does all right it pays for itself and it needs an awful lot of looking after you know all of that porcelain up there that all stacks up it all has to come down and um, get washed and put back up and and in amongst it all there are tea lights so when you visit at night the whole thing sparkles and it's wonderful there are five centuries of um chinese export there some of it's very good and some of it's just cheap bits of rubbish but we all live like that don't we it's only the museums that have everything that's right and perfect and so the year rolls on, and on the 1st of November I persuaded Londonist's Rachel Holdsworth to come with me to find out why no one's riding the cable car. I think we reached the conclusion that it's basically because it doesn't go anywhere useful, but not before we gave it a go ourselves, in the process finding out what it's like to look down the barrel of a jet plane. 
Fairground round waiting to leave the terminal as you, you know, sort of like on a roller coaster as you, you, you sort of prepare to to be shoot, you know, just to be shot off. Except with this, you're preparing to uh, trundle up an incline. You've got a fantastic view already. Can, can that possibly right? Surely that's way more than twelve meters. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm, I was reading that wrong. It said uh, top elevation, so maybe that means something else. Uh, if we look off to our right here, we're about halfway up the uh, the rise up to the flat part at the top. That's a good description, isn't it? And we can see the uh, Thames Barrier off to our right there, stretching across the uh, stretching across the river. And what's lovely is the rain has stopped and there's the blue sky, so it was perfect timing for this ride. It really was. Well, I've got to say, I don't feel the fear that I thought I was going to feel. Oh, my God, I just looked behind me. <laughs> me neither. In fact, I'm kind of going, oh, it's the Olympic Stadium, look. <laughs> This is the strange thing, isn't it, about the river? It doesn't matter where you are on it. It always looks as though you should be uh, able to see a different set of things in a different alignment. So here we are, and I'm looking to my left, and all the thing, I, I sort of feel like some of the things should be over there in front of us. Like the Olympic Park shouldn't be that far to our left with the, the big uh, Arsenal Metal Tower there. Yeah, the, the river bends in such a misleading way. You never quite know where you're meant to be looking. And yeah, I'm... I'm stunned that the Olympic Stadium looks closer, or as close as it is. Surely it should be, like, way off there. Okay, listener, here's what you don't do in the cable car. Um, You don't look behind you, because then... Oh, God. (laughs) As Rachel Holdsworth just has. uh, Because you realise that you are prevented from falling into the river far below you by a flimsy bit of Lego. Of, was it the pylon that, that holds the uh, the wires, strings, strings that were <laughs> floating above the river on? Yeah, it's just this twisty little pylon. Um, yes, doesn't look terribly sturdy. I think I'm having a freak out. <laughs> I'm not um, enjoying this at all. Fine. We're swinging. We are swinging. We're swinging from side to side. Um, but not... I wouldn't like to do this in high winds, which I presume is why they close it in high winds. Yes, I, th- I think you might, but how long is this journey? I'm going off the idea. <laughs> I'm not sure, five to ten minutes? They they slow it down during not peak, not rush hour times. Oh, good. So that, <laughs> yeah, so you, you can enjoy the view for longer. Well, I'm certainly enjoying the view for longer. In front of us we have docks, I can see. Well, that must be, uh, what, the Victoria docks or the Royal docks? I'm not sure. Uh, it must be. I mean, that's sort of roughly where we're heading. What's that um, building with the, the white sort of roof struts? Is that Smithfield? Uh, um, no. Billingsgate. What, Billingsgate. Billingsgate, yeah. One of the markets is around here. I think that's. I think that, that might be the new site for, for Billingsgate. It's got echoes, hasn't it? I feel like I recognise that kind of tubular white structure from maybe from the Olympic Park or something. Yeah, it's true. If you, you look from left to right, you've got the Olympic Park over to your left with the, the white tubular struts, and then to the right, you've got whatever that market is. Get a bit closer. I haven't got my glasses with me. It's got a big sign on it. Can't read it. The silence you're hearing, listener, is because I'm bricking it. <laughs> it's not. It's it's not too bad. It's 
I was actually quite nervous about going over um, the little wheels on each each pylon when you sort of pass over the pylon. Oh, why did you say that as we're coming up for the wheels? Oh, we've been through one already. It's fine. Um, I've been on a cable car up a mountain. Are you are you about to do something evil? No, no, I'm not. Believe me, I'm not going to rock it from side to side. That would be terrible. But yeah, I've, I've been on a like a wee cable car from mountain in Austria, and when we went over the wheels and the pylon, it it was horrible. It rocked, but we've been through one already, and you could barely tell, so it was fine. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, the one uh, I had a similar experience, and it was right on. It was perched on the lip of the cliff, and as you went over, you got this sudden. I'm saying this just as we're doing exactly that. You get this sudden sensation of plummeting, which I'm glad to say I have not <laughs> just felt. Yes, and oh, you look behind. The O2 looks really pretty. Would you would you look at that? That's beautiful, isn't it? I need to go off. And oh, and you can see, you can see the shard, um, perfectly positioned between two of the big um, Docklands towers. That's beautiful. Well, if that photograph doesn't win a Pulitzer, I don't know what will. We're on the other side of the river already. It was an incredibly swift crossing. We're not quite at maximum height now. And I'm seeing the most exciting thing that I've seen today. We're on Boris's gadget, down in whatever dock this is. There's somebody who's flying. He's using uh, water jet-powered flying equipment to hover above the water. He must be uh, five or six feet up. Uh, that looks like a very exciting sport that he's engaged in. That looks oh, that's just the coolest thing I've ever seen. Okay, that's next week's show. Yeah, yeah. We, we need to get down there and find out who that guy is. <laughs> Now, if we're going to get a moment when we feel like we've... Oh, that was the moment. I was was expecting uh, suddenly to feel like we were plummeting towards the earth, but we're okay, I think. Well, is that a lovely end-of-flight recording from the airline lady... Was it, was it my fear? No, fear is supposed to slow those moments down. That felt fine. That, that was really very pleasant. And we're, we're at the sort of level now where you feel you, you might be on a building looking down over the road below as opposed to flying through the air over the river. And there is... Right, that's fascinating. OK, you see across to our right there, that is yeah. the runway into City Airport. Oh, yes, it is. And there is a plane taking off almost in direct line with us. We can see its lights. That's how on earth can this be where they put the cable to? Yeah. Well, I think I, like I said it's 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 meant to be in the crash zone, um, but it was okayed by the the planning people, and that it is it's taking off. It's it's like it's coming directly for us. This is the weirdest thing. Well, our friend with the jet-powered flying equipment is still bobbing around on the docks there. I'm going to suggest that we regroup when we are back on dry land, and let's find out what's going on in this part of town. Well, as the year approached its end, I realised that one particular building has been hiding from me in plain view. Mike Patterson of London Historians met with me on December the 6th to tell me about the Tower of London and, amongst other things, how not to look after exotic animals. I mentioned the Tower as well. It was very hot, noisy, smelly, uh, all those sorts of issues. The, the Tower was always 
like that. Um, even if you go in the tower today uh, as a tourist, it's an extremely noisy place. And the tower's always been a very noisy place because of having, as I say, the mint and the zoo and tourists. It's had tourists for centuries too because they all used to like to come and watch, you know, come and see the animals in the zoo. So, uh, well, of course, that makes perfect. So when, when did the zoo begin? Around about the same time. Um, I think... Henry III was the first chap to have uh, an elephant, which was amazing. It would have been an Indian elephant, but it was a long. It didn't. It didn't survive very, very long. Um, <laughs> no, we, we should probably linger on that that point because the, this this was the worst zookeeping episode in uh, all of zookeeping. What the elephant? Not just the elephant. Oh, it, it, terrible by by modern standards. The whole history of the the zoo or the royal menagerie, as it was called. Again, the the whole zoo thing, like the tower itself, was a, a status business. So. Kings and queens of Europe would, you know, would have a zoo, um, and and as as exploration increased in the 16th, 17th centuries, there were more exotic things for their zoos, like giraffes and and, and God knows what. Um, the king of Norway, I think, sent the king of England a, a polar bear, so there was a polar bear in there for for a long time, um, and these animals would have been kept uh, on and off in, in appalling conditions, um, and also very dangerous for the public. The all sorts of stories of, of, of people, uh, you know, you know, just members of the public having their arm bitten off by a tiger or a bear or something like that, or bitten by a monkey, um, and so on. And uh, so eventually, when they started Regent's Park Zoo in the 19th century, um, Duke of Wellington by this time, from, ni- from 1826, he was the, the constable of the tower. Um, and uh, he was fed up with this whole business, especially public coming in and out looking at animals and whatnot. And we all know about what Wellington was like, and he just wanted to get this place back to a proper military fortress and all that sort of thing. And um, he chucked all the animals out, um, but not the zookeeper, because the zookeeper had a, had a place for life under contract. So he stayed. All the animals went um, to the new Regis Park Zoo, and that was the end of it. But there was therefore there was a zoo here for probably over 500 years I heard that they didn't know what elephants ate so they were feeding the elephant or attempting to feed it meat and beer for quite a long time that's correct um, but worse than that they, they, there was this thing that they thought that ostriches or, or large birds um, had uh, their diet was, was metal and so they, they fed several ostriches to death with nails and all sorts of bits of ironmongery, you know. Um, so <laughs> that was widely believed that ostriches, uh, yeah, ate iron. And there we have it. That was 2013, Londonist Out Loud style. I hope you enjoyed the episodes we've put out this year. We've got a lot of great material down already for some fantastic episodes in the coming weeks. I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. Special thanks to the team who work on the show, Ruth Hargreaves, Bernie Barkley, Mark Barr, and to Matt Brown and Lindsay Clark, and indeed all of our collaborators at Londonist. Thanks to my guests on this week's episode, Geraldine Buskin, Nigel de Bermondsey, Jake F. Berger, Roger Gifford, Lucy Ingalls, Stephen Coates, David Milne, Rachel Holdsworth, and Mike Patterson, as well as to all of those who've made the show a success over the last year. And finally, thank you for listening. Theme, incidental, and possibly wedding music was by Rory Anderson. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. Have a great new year.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.